3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on this Thursday, the 1st of March. Morning, Grace. Good morning, Dean. We're there already, not long now until Christmas. Don't say that. <laughs> um, yeah, it goes pretty quick. It goes pretty quick. Um, we have a bit of a, a jam-packed show for you today, hopefully. Um, at 7.10, we've got Anthony Kelly from Flemington Legal coming in mm-hmm. to talk to us about... Um, you know, some of the things that are happening with uh, police, mainly police integrity, after uh, our friend um, uh, Brett Gurren got in trouble mm-hmm. recently. Um, and then at 7.30, we'll be talking to Sonia Vumard, who is the author of Skin in the Game. And it's all about the fascinating insight into the world of journalism and the pitfalls of telling people's true stories, how... You know, that comes across, especially in this new age of digital media. So it'll be interesting to speak to her um, about her experience. She's been doing it for three decades. And then um, after 7.45, we'll listen to some uh, um, pre-records that uh, some of our team here at 3CR has done. But as usual, at this time of the morning, it's time to acknowledge country and welcome to our show. Um, we would like to acknowledge that we broadcast in the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation and we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and we acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. How are you, Grace? I'm very good. Yeah. Very excited to be back. Very excited to be back. We missed you the last couple of <laughs> weeks, and now shares is away. But you know, uh, the show must go on, as they say. Yeah. How are you, Dean? Yeah, no, I'm very well. I'm very well. It's um, it's been a, a pretty hectic week. I know last week um we were talking about how the UN should oppose Australia's deportation of Suntar Ruban, and we had. Uh, Umesh here from the Refugee Action Collective. I was just going to give you an update that um, Suntaraban was deported to Colombo, mm. uh, Sri Lanka on February the 22nd, along with four other Tamils as well. Yeah, yeah so all the fighting um, didn't pay dividends this time, but we have stopped uh, you know, a few deportations over the last few years as well. Some pretty sad news there to be reporting, actually. Yeah, that's really sad. Na, 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 na. Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally and March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join working women across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. We have a world to win. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts, for just one example. This is a public announcement. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brecky for Over the Wall. Ali MC and the Footscray Community Arts Centre present Rohingya Refugee Crisis in Colour an exhibition that delves deep into the heart of the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. Featuring photography from both Ali MC and Rohingya refugees, a short documentary and stunning aerial drone footage. Head down to the opening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 6pm on Thursday, February 8. The exhibition runs from February 9 until March 10. For more information, visit footscrayarts.com. A 3CR supporter. Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally and March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join working women across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. We have a world to win. Um, we're back. Um, it's just gone past seven o'clock. It's eight minutes past seven, in fact. <laughs> so, it's eight minutes past seven. Um, we've uh, about to get our first guest on, uh, and it's going to be quite interesting to um, actually yeah, listen to uh, Anthony talk to us about what's been happening in the news. Um, obviously, yesterday, you know, uh, we know that. Uh, Brett Gurin has resigned, um, and there's been a push uh, to build building for external watchdogs on mm. police as well. Um, yeah. So we know that the former head of professional standards has resigned over racist online posts, which have damaged the force's reputation and further strained relations with Melbourne's African community. I, I heard yesterday, and, I, and I'm not sure if it's true, but that he created the fake 
uh, social media site, which just doesn't make sense for somebody in his position to think that, that he could get away with, with creating. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter it what IP address you use or where you're yeah. going. You get, they're going to know it's you. But I guess that, I guess he was thinking sneakily. You know, he was like, I'm not going to put it as my name because that will lead back to me in the Victorian police. So I'll put it as this name. Yeah. And I heard something that has been happening for years, actually, and that nobody, some people knew about it last year and dobbed him in and then nothing happened until now. Um, but with all the digital surveillance available out there, I mean, it's just impossible for people. I mean, obviously you've got those uh, keyboard warriors who uh, mm. think they're getting away with it, but how, how police are definitely tracking or someone's tracking. They know. I don't it's know. Sort of I feel you. like there's these two big things where it's like people are either it's never in the middle. People are always like the police and the government know everything you, that you're doing online, which is yeah. probably true. Yeah. But then other people are like nobody can know, and it's all this, and it's like where's the middle ground of that? And actually, what is? I feel like there's all this talk about it, and people think that they understand, but where's actually the how do we know yeah. what actually well, you what can't doing. really, can you? Yeah. Except if they come down to your house and knock your house down because you've suddenly gone on a website that teaches you how to make something <laughs> that you shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> or you put post pictures of yourself doing things on Facebook. Yeah, that's right. All right, so um, Anthony Kelly uh, works for the Police Accountability Project, which is part of Flemington Legal, and we're really excited to be joined by him now. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning. Um, I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about the Police Accountability Project and how it came about. Sure. It was founded um, just over 10 years ago now and uh, the the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre Mm -hmm. was working on a whole series of uh, policing issues around uh, racially discrimination policing practices that we were um, coming across in our own Flemington Kensington and North Melbourne regions, and um, but also we've had a, a longer history of um, police accountability work going back to the uh, police shootings in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, where um, we were working with quite a few families impacted by um, fatal police shootings. Mm. So yeah, the, the, the police accountability campaign now is quite a broad um, advocacy, legal and um, you know, education uh, project that works across Victoria. We have some, we have had some interstate cases, but we're predominantly Victorian, and we have a multidisciplinary team of people who run legal cases. We do some criminal defence work, uh, coronial inquests, uh, and but are, are also a, a lot of systemic advocacy around police accountability in the state. Mm. Sounds great. So. Over the news this last week, there's been what's happening with the Assistant Commissioner. Can you explain a bit about what happened and what the implications of that as well? Sure. So, um, former now former Assistant Commissioner Brett Guerin was in charge of Professional Standard, Standards Command in Victoria Police, so in charge of oversighting all the uh, complaints about police misconduct uh, that were coming in from Victorian public. Uh, he was in the role for the last three years, and before that, he was in various other roles, um, anti-bikey task forces, and so forth. But even um, going back to 2006 and 2007, when he was superintendent, he was in charge of the area uh, around Flemington, Kensington, in the Moody Valley Police Service area. 
And so he was in charge. Um, he was one of the local commanders at a time when um, some of the most horrific um, and racially abusive policing was occurring uh, and that we were submitting complaints to the local area command about that policing. So uh, it's his, uh, his dismissal after revelations by the Fairfax investigative journalist has now shed a new light on uh, not only his time back in the Mooney Valley area uh, back in 2006, but also in his role as um, head of Professional Standards Command and also how um, he got promoted to that sort of rank holding such abhorrent views uh, and, yeah. I saw somewhere that it meant that a whole bunch of cases were going to get re-examined. Is that what's going to happen? Well, yeah, so we're, we're looking back at our, some of our cases now, and, um, but we haven't heard yet where the police will be doing that. What we've done is um, called upon Victoria Police uh, that the onus is on them to review cases now. And his, his views... Uh, for those that you know, most people have probably seen the um, the media about his online trolling behaviour. But it was not only um, racist views, but deeply misogynist and sexist and um, transphobic and and um, sexually violent um, sort of online abuse. So um, the, the sort of complaints that police receive about any of those areas that you know. Um, transphobic behaviour by police or homophobic behaviour. Um, and he's had oversight of those complaints. So it's deeply concerning what level of influence he had on the, pl- the complaint outcomes mm. under his watch. Do you think this goes to show that that is still really accepted and held views within the police force, if he can rise to that level? Well, there has been cultural change within Victoria Police, certainly over the last decade. Victoria Police Command um, certainly don't hold those values um, explicitly. Uh, but what we've seen is that, you know, even members in the command in the police command team can still hold, the, you know, these sort of views and maintain those sort of permissions. Um, we do, Also, we do know that um, the complaints about his racist behaviour were were known about to Victoria Police Command. So mm-hmm. way back in 2006 or seven, he spoke at a Flemington police station and according to the media reports, he used the term towelheads uh, to to police um, off the Flemington police station. So he was talking to a whole group of people um, and his role was to try and, you know, his, his role was superintendent at that time. Uh, and that uh, his language at that meeting was so so shocking that someone uh, reported it to the chief commissioner's office, made a complaint. So that's uh, an indication that police knew about his racist attitudes, and yet he was still promoted. Anthony, um, I mean, obviously. Uh Police Minister Lisa Neville um, was asked uh, yesterday about, you know, uh, Mr Guerin's online behaviour and why it wasn't discovered by IBAC in, uh, an IBAC investigation, and she sort of mentioned that the probe didn't delve deeply enough, um, which for me is a bit concerning, and, and I guess, you know, then is a prelude to a need for maybe an external watchdog to IBAC. 
Well, yeah, so at the moment the, there's a parliamentary inquiry by the IBAC committee, so the, the committee that, I, that, I, that uh, sort of look over IBAC, and they're looking at alternative models for police complaint investigation in Victoria. So, and we've been submitting with a host of other um, organisations and human rights bodies and looking at what can be the, um, the most appropriate model for handling police complaints. And our, the, our model has been broadly supported is one that meets five key human rights benchmarks. That, that, you know, it's really culturally independent, institutionally independent of police. Um, that it can have the, have the capability and resources to thoroughly investigate police human rights abuses. And it can do that in a really prompt, transparent manner in a way that is centres the victims um, and their families in the complaint process. And so those five benchmarks are being broadly supported. It's something that the, the IBAC committee is looking seriously at right at the moment. Um, so what we would like to see, whether it's IBAC provided with most appropriate resources and you know, the, um, specialist um, insights, yeah, so whether it's IBAC expanded or whether it's a new body, it's a little bit um, beside the point. It really needs to be, but its independence from Victoria Police just seeming is, you know, it's the key factor that, and especially the one that's indicated by this Brett Guerin saga. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain what IBAC is? Sure. So IBAC is Victoria's independent broad-based commission against corruption. Mm-hmm. It replaced the Office of Police Integrity um, about five years ago now and it uh, looks at all misconduct um, claims and issues in Victoria, not just policing. Mm-hmm. However, 60% of the complaint it receives relate to Victoria Police, uh, but it doesn't have the resources or quite the mandate uh, as yet to actually investigate any uh, sizable proportion of those police complaints. It only investigates a few. Um, so what we'd like to see is a very thorough and well-resourced investigative um, unit within uh, IBAC that can, that can investigate a huge range of uh, human rights misconduct allegations uh, effectively and thoroughly. And, and I mean from what we, we've saw, we've seen is um, obviously the Chief Commissioner Graham Ashton has been uh, seemingly unsettled by you know the scandal um, and, and in terms of the, the IBAC overseeing the complaints process, have you seen uh, sort of um, anywhere around the world where the outsourcing of this type of monitoring has worked? You mentioned well, yeah, the Areas and yeah, so yeah, so there's a, there's a number of uh, independent police complaints handling bodies around the world that we look at for as examples. Um, one of the best is the police ombudsman in, in Northern Ireland. It's called, it's called Pony, uh, and they have they're fully independent. Uh, they have investigative teams that can get to a police incident within the an hour. It's a golden hour after a, um, a criminal incident. Uh, they can they manage the crime scene. They they interview all the witnesses. They separate police and interview and interview them. And they the, their investigations are um, are really gold standard. Uh, and so the, we look to them as one example. But there's also the um, special investigations unit in Canada, um, which has also recently been reviewed 
uh, in Ontario, Canada. There's a range of different models in the US. So the New York um, um, Civilian Review Board mm. and other ones in Washington. Some of these have their failures and some of them are improving you know, yeah. uh, and, and getting better. But each of them are significantly far vast we have currently in Victoria. How did they come about? Does that make sense? Like, was there something that happened that led to those institutions being implemented? Yeah. Well, yeah, so often. So in the, in the, America, in the States, for instance, we've seen, even over the last few years since the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. a really um, a, a huge strengthening of these civilian review boards and um, a, a civilian oversight of police matters. Um, so that's happening throughout the U.S. in response to a community outrage and um, concern and advocacy around police conduct. So, and we've seen the same in in, um, in Australia. So we've only got our um, a complaint investigation that we got to the point where we are now after massive advocacy 40 years ago. Mm. And um, um, so, yeah, all the way around um, uh, Australia. We're strengthening these accountability systems slowly but surely. And in Victoria, we really, you know, we've got an opportunity at the right of the moment with this um, public inquiry and the IBAC committee uh, to get it right, basically, to make sure that we're not back here decades later um, with the same sort of problems arising. Mm. Anthony, I love Cam Houston. He's a good investigative journalist. But in the age yesterday... Um what what it sort of said was it talked about how uh, you know this had damaged the force's reputation, and the line that really shocked me was that it said and further strained relations with Melbourne's African community. Now being based in the Flemington <coughs> Kensington Community Legal Centre, does that have to be the first paragraph? Because it's not necessarily about that, is it? It's about what the police themselves have have um, found themselves in damage control over. Yeah. Police often see that, see this as a, a problem of relationship, and that's why a lot of the emphasis on police cultural change has been around changing the rhetoric, changing policy. Um, but it's the systemic change of um, uh, policing culture and police accountability systems that um, uh, is the real work. So, yeah, Victoria Police really need to go beyond relationship and rhetoric if we're going to see significant change in this area. And and in terms of where to now, I mean, is there can there be any recourse for for what Brett has done? I mean, obviously, if you and I were in a position and we were doing something like that, which was you know uh, uh, derogatory and inflammatory in that in that position, um, he's just resigned. So does he just walk away scot free essentially? Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, there may well be other repercussions, but IBAC are looking at the um, his online trolling behaviour at the moment and we're calling on um, them to widen that investigation into how he was um, uh, supported to rise up through the ranks mm. and what, what level Victoria Police knew about his attitudes and behaviour. Um, so there's a ongoing investigation at the moment. There might be some outcomes from that. But it's interesting, just last night I was looking at Pony, you know, the police ombudsman in Northern Ireland, and in September last year, they went out and arrested a police officer who was engaged in abusive online trolling. Um, and um, so it's really, it's in stark contrast. So what we want an independent investigative agency that can really um, 
recognise and respond to um, police misconduct and human rights abuses really quickly and effectively. And that's that's when we're going to start to see some some change, rather than just pay lip service to oversight or, or uh, you know, um, uh, police standards. And it says a lot about the, uh, you know, the, the dangers of the unfettered nature of social media. Grace and I were just talking about, you know, on the one hand, um, ASIO, the police, are saying, we know exactly what you're doing online, you know, you can't get away. <laughs> and then you've got somebody who has a long and successful career that has been scuttled, obviously, by his alter ego that he carefully created, Vernon Demarest. How How can somebody in that position think that... It, they could get away with creating an alias when we're being told by the police that, hey, um, you do that, we'll catch you. Yeah, look, I don't really know. He, um, <laughs> a, a lot of it was um, we, we knew about his behaviour because we monitor a lot of the police uh, on police um, debates. Yeah. So there was a lot of um, old school political debates going on in his trolling behaviour of the Community Advocacy Alliance. So we were watching that um, play out online, and from you know early last year, basically, and we know that that community advocacy alliance, which is made up of former police and high-level police, including um, former commissioner um, Cal Glare, um, had been trying to expose it for quite some time, mm. and uh, that was partly why it wasn't dealt with earlier, is because the current Victoria Police and IBAC simply saw it as you know, um, scuttlebutt and... and um, well, in his defence was know, that he was yeah. uh, commenting as a private citizen. It's a bit hard when you're the acting chief of police to separate your your powers as such, be a private citizen, <laughs> make those comments, but then turn up to work in a nice navy blue uniform that we're paying you for. Mm, yeah, well, that's what's um, come out really, really strongly at the moment. But uh, I wasn't so concerned about his police-on-police... Commentary. It's, it's when the um, his commentary was so um, significantly, you know, racist and um, homophobic and abusive generally. Mm. Mm. That um, that you know that's when it became really clear and and also um, and damaging and also his behaviour on the job um, back in Flemington Police Station. That's what's um, really been you know to what extent his views impacted on his on his work yeah overseeing complaints um thanks so much for your time anthony um i was just wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to leave us with before you oh look by. it's worthwhile for people interested in this it's worthwhile keeping track of um, policeaccountability.org.au the website so we do lots uh, we uh, up, updates and everything there and every now and again we call upon uh community concerns to um engage and um, you know, fire off letters and, and support and so forth. So keep an eye on that website. Um, it's a useful portal of information around any of these accountability issues in Victoria. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cheers, Anthony. Thank you. Hi. Um, and that was Anthony Kelly from the Kensington... Flemington and Kensington. Flemington, Kensington Community Legal Centre. It's interesting. I know last year... Um, we spoke to uh, a justice group co- uh, called Copwatch, which mm. have origi- originated from the US, but yep. we were speaking to the group in um, 
New South Wales, who are really our community justice organisation, which has called for a review of police training and officers who shot dead a 15-year-old boy. And I think in terms of what the, the guys at the um, Flemington community, Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre are doing is making sure that, um, yeah, the police are accountable for their actions. Mm. Um, and it, it's very disturbing. I was, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it talks about... Um, uh, the, 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 uh, Melbourne's African community's relationship with police, and so the other night they were tr- they had a news short news break. You know, mm-hmm. oh, this happened, this happened, and then there were these people who whose home got broken into, <laughs> and the voice announcer said, oh, "It is believed that African thieves were involved." And so I don't know what African thieves mean. <laughs> I, I know that, you know, people have of African appearance, but the fact that they left that part out and they just called yeah. them African thieves, I thought, yeah. well, you can sort of see how, uh, yeah, uh, the community can be divided because mm. now the term is not African appearance, it's just African thieves. Yeah. So look out. They're coming for you. And also something really interesting that um, I think maybe the Police Accountability Project put out was the crime stats of Victoria and actually how they're the lowest that they've ever been. Mm. And this whole, like, African youth crime thing is actually not based in evidence at all. Just uh, selling papers. Just selling papers and dividing communities. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts, for just one example. This is a public service announcement. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brekkie for Over the Wall. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Why do you reckon people should subscribe to 3CR? Because I think we have more awesome music shows than anywhere else. And they're niche and they're interesting and they're adventurous. 3CR, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. If you're on digital, no tram interference. But if you're streaming, there's no tram interference. No. That's true. But if you like tram, interference is always the AM. The AM, old school. (laughs) You know, some people like to crack along vinyl. Well, some Some people like noise music. Experimental Mm -hmm, noise music. mm -hmm. To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. Yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? $150. $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Oh
Call 3CR 9419 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. You're on 855 AM 3CR. It's uh, time now to introduce our next guest. Uh, having been doing this show for a while, we sort of consider ourselves some, you know, somewhere in the journalistic uh, framework, even though we're not technically uh, qualified. Our next guest has written a new book called uh, Skin in the Game, which provides a fascinating insight into the world of journalism and the pitfalls of telling people's stories. We are joined now by the author of Skin in the Game, uh, Stella Prize long-listed author, Sonia Vumard. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I sort of mentioned that, you know, we, because we do this show, we might consider ourselves, uh, you know, in, in, in the world of journalism, but uh, Skin in the well, Game... Well, everyone's a journalist these days, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and I was going to get to that, you know. I guess, uh, yeah, that could be my first question. I mean, how how do you avoid becoming a technician with all the advanced tools and applications and, I guess, uh, focus on telling the audience something they don't already know? Well, I think... Even though I, I made the joke about how everybody's a journalist, I mean, Facebook has, of course, enabled um, what, what some people describe as a democratisation of media. But I think in the end, uh, being trained and skilled and having done, done something for decades makes you a better practitioner. So because I've been writing stories since I was 18 years old, I, I, I consider that this is my, my calling. Mm. And there are certain skills and uh, there's a lot of study that's gone with that and there's a lot of reading that's gone with that. So it, it I think, produces a better product. And while there's a lot of, um, you know, fairly superficial and quick information that goes out there produced by a lot of people, there, there is still you know, a relatively small number of people who can do it professionally. And talking about these decades, I mean, you've probably seen a lot of change from, you know, the dot matrix, the black screen with the green typing <laughs> on the screen and the old um, typewriter. What has surprised you in, in those decades of writing? Mate, I, st- I started at the Melbourne Herald writing um, all my stories on, on, um, on typewriters that did mostly half the time didn't work with a, <laughs> with a cigarette on the side yeah. that would burn the sort of faux, faux wood furniture desk that I was sitting on in some uncomfortable chair. Um, what surprised me? I, well, I suppose nobody really saw the decline of newspapers happening as, as quickly and as devastatingly as it did. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that the proliferation of online for, for all the bad things that it that it has in terms of you know fake news and Facebook and manipulation of Facebook and so on, it, it has also opened up a huge world of of rich reading, much of it free, which isn't necessarily a good thing for those making it, but it it does mean that there's a, a wide array of stuff that you can read, particularly from overseas that you couldn't read before. But the flip side of that, of course, is that the sort of the Australian voice can sometimes get subsumed and lost in all that. Mm, mm. And I mean, and I guess um, this is probably where the, the, the book itself and the title of the book, Skin in the Game, um, led you to sort of, yeah, write about it. Can you give us a little bit into an insight into what led you to writing this book? Yeah, well, I mean, I, 
as I've got older, I've become very conscious of the, the gravity of telling people's stories. When we, when I first started in journalism, we were encouraged and, and deadlines made it necessary to sort of approach the storytelling process in a very sort of alpha male way. You would go out and get it, you know, almost like hunting. And in over the years, I've become a lot more thoughtful, I think, thankfully, about uh, the way I go about it. And I've realised as well that there is the capacity to do harm to to people who, whose stories you tell by either, you know, not telling them fairly, not telling them enough, or indeed in some cases telling them inaccurately, or uh, by by getting them uh, through sort of, um, you know, not properly con uh, informed consent. Um, so I, I've... I've, I've these, all of these things have been swirling in my mind for a long time and I did a Doctorate of Creative Arts at UTS uh, a couple of years ago and uh, did, I wrote another book called The Media and the Massacre which explored the ethics of the storytelling surrounding the Port Arthur Massacre. And while I was writing that, I was sort of doing a lot of scribbling around the edges about myself and my family history and my own experiences in journalism and I sort of started to see those things as being a valid and, and sort of important story of our times. So that's really what led me to to kind of start putting it together into a book. And, and I guess, we, you know, getting back to you even going to do further study, we know that the basic question that journalists strive to answer when chasing a, a, a new story in particular are sort of questions starting with the who, what, where and when, and, and I guess mm -hmm. even the how. how. How do you start the process or how have you learned to start the process of telling true stories? Gee, I mean, that's a good question because, yes, I mean, obviously the who, what, why, when and where were, were, were always sort of the mantra. But I think for me, I find myself now writing away from the news of the day and reflecting a lot more, trying to reflect a lot more deeply on sort of the the the, the deeper undercurrents, I suppose, of what's going on in our world. Um, if you become a slave to the news rhythm, it can sometimes throw you into a, a superficial kind of way of, of seeing the world. Mm. And I have the luxury, I suppose, now of, of having perhaps more time and also being able to write what I want. So, you know, getting your hands on the narrative is, is a very wonderful feeling. And if you can, if you can be the, the driver of the narrative, you know, you can you can get the story back for yourself and for the people who perhaps haven't had it before. I was just reading a really interesting story this morning uh, by or about Hannah Gadsby, the comedian, and she says that stories can exclude people as well as include them. Mm. And I think, you know, it really resonated with me because I thought I do feel the need to give voice to some of those unvoiced stories because just as she was talking about the art canon and, and, and it's the same applies to the literary canon, I think, that it's it's always been men who've dominated the culture and therefore dominated what stories should be told, what art should be shown, you know, what is culturally valid and, 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 and current in a given society. So I suppose it's an attempt as well to kind of address those things as a woman who, you know, in many ways sees herself, in my case, as an outsider, so uh, I enjoy that kind of, that sort of slightly rebellious, observational um, character. 
and, and, and although you have sort of, um, you know, had time as a Canberra correspondent and you've obviously played out a, a career in journalism and out against uh, the, the changing nature of journalism, which has ultimately probably led you to to um, be in a, well, we could call you a, a radicalist, really, because I think uh, <laughs> even radio stations like 3CR, it's about giving communities that don't have a voice a chance to, to be heard. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I, I went the establishment way from the beginning, and, you know, I think it was very, well, when I say very clear to me, I mean, it was, I was only 18 when I became a cadet journalist, so I was very young and, and uh, you know, reasonably sophisticated for my age, but still... Um, had obviously had a lot to learn and um but but it, it did always uh, ring true to me that you had to get into the establishment to be able to change it. I know that's cliche, but if I sometimes think what would I have done if I'd you know gone to Melbourne uni and done arts and you know got involved in politics or whatever, and I suspect I probably you know would have could have ended up on a on a very different path that that wouldn't be as exciting as what where I find myself today. And I guess, um, do you, are you finding that, you know, when you are, uh, and I think the book itself is about um, t- telling true stories and I guess the pitfalls of telling people stories, are there, yes. any, are, are there any ethics in writing these stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You, and, and in fact, well, the Journalist Code of Ethics itself is, I mean, I think, you know, sets a very low bar and that. That claims that you have to tell both sides of the story. Um, it, I think it, I don't think it refers to anything like informed consent. Um, so there's a lot. Uh, my, I, I regard my ethical observa- uh, obligations to be higher than than those of the journalistic code of ethics, in the sense that I like to involve my subjects in my stories and even give them some power. These days, that that is give them some power over the story as well. So one of the stories that's in the book is uh, with a, uh, a friend of mine who is a, a young stroke survivor. She had a, a, a devastating stroke when she was in her very early 20s. And I happened to sort of find myself working with her in, in a day job. And, and you know, we got talking and I, I sort of became very interested in her story. And I asked her if she would work with me to tell it. And... So I went around to her place one Sunday afternoon and I just, you know, we sat there for about three or four hours and the, the, the stroke affected the language part of her brain. So she she still has some impairment along those lines. So even though she has recovered quite, you know, some people say miraculously, um, she still obviously suffers some, some um, problems. But um, I was very keen to, almost as an experiment, but also to be fair to her, to really try and emulate her voice in the story so the way I told the story was not so much she said she said but more um, going into her voice in, in, in non-fiction writing we call it free indirect discourse and the idea is that you as the writer you try and sort of channel the voice of the person and that's what I attempted to do with that story and um, and I made her read drafts all along the way and she showed it to her family members who'd been involved in her experiences and she asked me to change certain words and, um, you know, things that perhaps, you know, she didn't, that, that I wouldn't have known as a, as, a um, as an ableist person, I suppose, uh, you know, work, certain words that you don't use in relation to disability. So, mm-hmm. for example, with her hand that was affected by the stroke, I, I referred to it, I referred to her other hand as her good hand 
and she said that she didn't want me to use that kind of language. So in that way, you know, I was empowering her, I suppose, and, and very keen to understand the truth of her story rather than my, um, you know, telling it from on high, which is what we do too much as, as traditional journalists. You know, we're the ones who decide how a story has mm. to be told and, and um, oh, bring does. all of our sort of prejudices and power to it. And so I guess as you definitely sort of wield a, a writer scalpel, um, I guess both uh, on, on your subjects and on yourself, how, how are you sort of um, going about bringing something new to, to the pleasure and I guess ultimately the pain of telling those true stories as well? I think, yeah, I think that the point that I made before about collaborating with my subjects mm. is, is it's not, not super new, but it's, it's relatively new, I think, in an Australian journalism context, although I do know other people who who are doing it, even if they might not call it that. Yeah. Um, so doing something new in the sense that I think, because I've been out of mainstream journalism for quite a while, I think I'm able to cast a, a much more uh, critical eye over it without completely dumping it. And um, and also, though, I think it's, it's important to, if you are going to be writing about yourself, to avoid being too egotistical and to try to try to go humbly to the page, really, as I think Stephen King put it. Um, and yes, the, the, the trick I think is to be as harsh on yourself as you, as you are, as harsher on yourself, or as harsh as you are on anyone else. And so the book itself then is all really about providing insights into um, your career, and I guess really uh, questioning the relationship with journalism. And the nature of the interview, am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean that, that's a big part of it. But um, it's actually in three. I think it's how many sections is it? I just better have a look. Um, <laughs> I'm going to familiarise myself with it. I'm launching it tonight. <laughs> um, so yeah, the first part is called a journalist's eye, and then the second part is called the interview, which looks very closely at the whole kind of dynamic, psychological dynamics of the interview. The third section is called power, and the fourth section is portraits. Mm. So. It starts off with my kind of history in journalism and how I grew up in a journalistic family and why I was inspired to become a journalist and how I used to see the world as one big news story. And then it goes into the, the uh, yes, the, the whole questions of interviewing. And then it looks at um, issues of power in, in society, <clears throat> excuse me, including, um, you know, the rampant sexual harassment that, that occurred in the 80s in Melbourne journalism, certainly, and I suspect elsewhere in Australia. Um, so, yeah, it kind of, um, it's it's a p- very personal collection of stories, but also a very kind of, I suppose, documentary collection of, of stories okay. of journalism from the 80s to, to now. And it must drive you batty when you're sitting there listening to news or even you know um the reporting of news and the way journalism has gone um you know sometimes you hear a story and then they find out that it was actually all fabricated but it's gone to all the news wires around the world must drive you insane Mm. oh it it does and in fact i i've started to limit my my news intake to to very uh select sources because even sometimes listening to ABC radio I can go crazy with with the, some of the things that are said and um, and some of the things that are not said or not included 
but that's probably just me being a bit of an old Grinch at this stage, I suspect. Oh, well, I was just saying to Grace, I was listening to the news the other day, and they, they were talking about a robbery that happened, and the term African thieves was used instead of African yeah. appearance, and I thought, there's a new word that's coming to the vernacular. So, yeah, it must, oh, totally. uh, it must um, destroy, uh, you know, a, a, a journalist's integrity too at some point, thinking, you know, these yeah. are the people that we're sort of working with and also competing for space with. Sure. Um, although it has to be said as well that, I mean, things have improved in journalism to a large extent in the sense that, you know, the, there, were, there were certain things when I started in journalism, for example, you weren't allowed to use the term Ms for um, a woman. The title, you know, you couldn't call, I, I couldn't call myself Ms. Vumard. I had to be Miss or Mrs. Mm. And mm. Um, the, the blokes who ran, ran the show basically thought that this Ms. thing was ridiculous and I wasn't allowed, to, we weren't allowed to use words like hospitalisation because they thought that was a, an Americanism that shouldn't be creeping into the English language. So there were a lot of sort of anachronistic and uh, I think prejudiced um, standards that existed then and many of those I think have improved. As, you know, so we, we've gained some things as well as lost them. Yeah, and I think we've come a long way um, since the... Um what was it? Was it the the Derwent Star or something, or the Gazette in the in the eighteen hundreds? That was the first newspaper that was uh, published <laughs> in Australia. Um, and well, you know more about that history than I do because I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I uh, I did a subject at uni which was media, um, Australian media, and it was interesting to see the progression of you know even where the left like newspapers like the Bulletin and those magazines and those great mm. satirists came from. So we've come a long way since then. But um, you mentioned you're launching the book um, this evening um i am and so it'll be available from tomorrow yeah well i mean i think it's even in the shops now i hope um i've had a look online and it seems to be in readings and all the sort of quality bookshops and there's actually a really um nice review on on the readings website if anyone wants to read a bit more about what, what's in there before they uh deal out their cold hard cash <laughs> skin in the game thank you very much um Sonia, we really appreciate you joining us on 3CR and giving us an insight into your wonderful uh, career as a journalist and the work that you are doing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And that was uh, Sonia Vumard, the author of Skin in the Game, and I guess she was talking really about uh, an insight into the world of, of Australian journalism and, and the pitfalls she's had in the last three decades of where she started as a cadet to now having some free time to be able to... Uh, tell people's true stories um, in, in the new light. Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally and March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join working women across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. We have a world to win. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. And that was Everything is Free by Chilean Welsh. Uh, trade union news for quick fire news stories by Stick Together presented by Matt Kunkel is up next. The National Australia Bank has announced that it has commenced its sweeping restructure and that 1,000 workers will soon be without jobs. The move is part of a wider plan announced last November to sack 6,000 workers. This number represents more than one in six of the bank's full-time equivalent staff. These first job cuts come just after reports that the bank's profit rose by 3% in the last quarter, putting it on track to make a profit of more than $6 billion this financial year. The Finance Sector Union's National Secretary, Julia Angrisano, said NAV's profit meant that it was in a position to minimise retrenchments and maximise redeployments, and that the program to cut these jobs does not meet community expectations. Big business has been agitating for further cuts in the corporate tax rate, saying that it would be a good thing for workers, that somehow greater profits of companies will lead to improved wages and an increased numbers of jobs. Yet the move by the National Australia Bank to cut jobs as its profits are on the rise are one of the funnest examples that trickle-down economics is just a myth. The New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has released the previously secret text of the second iteration of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The so-called Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership is said to be signed by 11 nations who recommenced negotiations after President Trump pulled the United States out of the original round. The Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, also known as AFTINET, report that the text of the CPTPP is largely unchanged from the original TPP. Campaigners warn that this deal will be bad for workers, bad for the environment and undermine government's rights to legislate in the public interest. The deal still includes the controversial provisions that would allow foreign businesses to sue governments if they were to pass legislation that could be considered to limit or damage their profits. Such provisions have been used against the government of Egypt by multinational company Viola, who argued that the government's moves to increase the minimum wage would limit their profits. The deal will also allow companies to bring in temporary migrant workers for projects without first testing the local job market. Unions fear that these workers will be exploited in a similar fashion to the widespread abuses of workers entering the country on 457 visas. Negotiated in secret, this agreement is less about free trade and more about entrenching the power of corporations. The Australian government plans to sign this agreement in Chile on the 8th of March this year. For more information, head to the AFTINET website at www.aftinet.org. The Maritime Union of Australia are now facing contempt of court charges arising out of the two-week picket at the Melbourne port. The picket was set up to protest the unfair sacking of a union activist at International Stevedoring Company, ICTSI, or VICT as they're known in Victoria. 
It is alleged that Victorian State Secretary Joe Italia, West Australian Secretary Christy Kane and Assistant Deputy National Secretary Will Tracy marched to the gates of the terminal despite court orders to remain at least 100 metres from the protest camp. In a separate case, the terminal operators are suing the MUA, alleging up to $100 million in damages arising from the picket. The contempt action comes more than two months after the completion of the protest and appears that it may have a political edge to its timing. Far-right boss unions, the Australian Mines and Metals Association and the Master Builders Association are seeking to exploit the contempt charges and frustrate the proposed union amalgamation between the MUA, the CFMEU and the Textile Clothing and Footwear Union. Employer groups are terrified of the combined might of the three unions and are leaving no stone unturned in their attempts to prevent the merger. Lawyers for the employers group have sent a letter to the Fair Work Commission arguing that these new contempt of court charges must be the subject of a hearing. Lawyers for the union have responded, claiming that these issues have nothing to do with whether or not the three unions should be allowed to amalgamate. But the process further delays the amalgamation proceedings and the Commission will hear further submissions on the issue. The Victorian branch of the Transport Workers Union have secured a victory in their ongoing campaign to safeguard jobs at airline catering company Donata. Two weeks ago, the company declared that it would be making large job cuts as a result of losing the contract to provide catering services to Virgin Airlines. The company had made threats of widespread compulsory redundancies of affected roles. The union was outraged as it was reported that threats had been made that the company would shed permanent jobs and instead retain lower-paid labour-hire staff in their place. After negotiations, the company has agreed to a voluntary redundancy scheme, which will allow workers from outside the affected areas to leave if they wish and will put further limits on the company's ability to hire and use labour-hire casuals. The union indicates that it will also allow workers whose roles are affected by the loss of contract to be redeployed to other areas of the business. In sad news, pioneering equal pay campaigner Zelda DiPrano passed away last week at the age of 90. The red flag at Melbourne's Trades Hall flew at half-mast as the movement mourned the loss of one of its most colourful and passionate fighters. Growing up in what were then the slums of Carlton, she left school at 14 and worked in factories, where her struggle for wage equity for women began. She was fired from a series of jobs for agitating for wage equity. She then went on to work as a dental nurse and became a shop steward with the Hospital Employees Federation before becoming a clerk at the Meat Workers Union. At times, Zelda was forced to struggle not only against the bosses, but against the chauvinism prevalent in the male-dominated trade union movement. Zelda famously chained herself to the Commonwealth Arbitration Building in 1969, protesting its dismissal of an equal pay case. She would often recollect the story about how when the police were cutting her off the arbitration building, they asked, aren't you embarrassed? You're here all by yourself. To which she replied, it might be me here by myself this week, but next week there'll be two, the following week four and eight and so on. The following week, she again chained herself to the court, this time joined by two other women. Alva Geike and Thelma Solomon. The three went on to establish the Women's Action Committee and the Women's Liberation Centre, and it was the Women's Action Committee which organised Melbourne's first pro-choice rally in 1975. Zelda continued to be active in the campaign for wage equity, speaking at a major rally during the Australian Services Union Equal Pay Case in 2011. And in 2016, a group of early childhood educators, inspired by Zelda, chained themselves to the Prime Minister's office, demanding equal pay. While Zelda may no longer be with us, her monument is her work, and the new generation of unionists eager to take up her fight. 
And that was uh, Union News with Matt Kunkel. Uh, yeah, we might. Um, I know a, a couple of weeks back we had the opportunity of speaking to Jessica Morrison, who is the Executive Officer of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy, Advocacy sorry, Network, and we were talking about the event that they had, um, which was an evening with Roger Waters in discussion with Palestinian Australian author and activists, uh, including uh, Anthony Lowenstein. Um, and it was, uh, it, from all accounts, I didn't get to go, it was a fantastic evening having Roger Waters there mm. after his, his concert. But now... So now we're going to hear from Jan Bartlett, who interviews um, Palestinian activist Balsam al um, Tamini. On the program two weeks ago, we heard from Palestinian activist and broadcaster Yusuf Al-Rimawi speaking about 17-year-old Ahad Tamini, just the latest of hundreds of Palestinian children arrested and jailed for resisting the occupation of their homes. Robert Martin is another one of the presenters of the program, Palestine Remembered, here at 3CR at 9.30 on Saturday mornings. Late last year, Robert spent two months in Palestine and visited the Tamini family in their home, who for generations have resisted the occupation. Her father, Bassem, was prevented at the last moment to come to Australia in April last year to talk about the Palestinian struggle. Robert interviewed Bassem and what follows is a slightly edited version of his interview. And at the end, Robert will talk about his time in Palestine. The issue is the occupation and the history. We are here. We, I told you a story about when we are here. I always, when somebody asks me this, I always said that my uncle was sitting under a mulberry tree in 1976. They succeeded to stop the settler to take the land. And because of that, a journalist asked him, he was an old man, and he asked him, since when you are in the, you own this land? He looked at him and said, I was sitting under this mulberry tree when Adam Bass from here and asked me if I see if passing or not. For that, as a Palestinian, we don't know when and uh, since when and why we must prove that we are here since long time. We are here. And also, a lot of people in all over the world, they want Palestinians to prove their right. Why, I don't know. What happened in 1976? Will you stop them taking more land? They came, a group from Goshemunin, terrorist group, settler, to took a land from the Bisalih to make a settlement. In that year, they could stop them in, in, uh, to do that. For that, the journalists started coming and asking what's happening. Why nobody want, don't ask the Israeli to prove? When they took the land, they asked us if we have a permit or a license for our land. But nobody asks you in USA if you have a permit or not, because they want to legitimize their occupation for our land. They use the Turkish law, the Jordanian law, the Israeli law, and which law they can found any way to took the Palestinian land. And can you tell me about the march that you have every Friday and sort of when it began and how it began? Because I also understand it stopped for the last few weeks for reasons you can tell me. Because of the occupation and we want to raise our hands and uh, call our voice for everyone of the world that we can't keep silent under occupation. 
And after the settlers start extending their fence, taking their land, attacking the people, we decided in December 9, 2009, to start a model of non-violent resistance to create a third Palestinian alternative because negotiation and armed resistance, we want to put for the Palestinian another option to be chosen and you follow because we feel that the negotiation will not need for anything. For that, we don't want to give Israeli a reason to all the time show uh, the Palestinian as a terrorist. After they make a link, we have the right to resist in any mean, but the mean is to serve the goal. For that, we want to create this model to convince our society by this way of resistance. We start December 9, 2009, to make a link with the first Intifada date. Since that date, we have a weekly demonstration, daily clashes with the army. We have two gates on the entrance of the village, which is one of it closed since 2001, and the other one closed and open for a lot of short period, long period. This is obviously the Israelis that close it. You have no choice. You don't get a choice. We haven't a choice. You see the, the first home of the village, it's around 100 meters from a gate. But when they close it, the owner of this house, he must go back and around the village from other road to go back to his home. And he can't walk because they, they don't allow him to walk. And they must go around other village to come to his home and it took him 20 kilometers just 100 meters to 20 kilometers we lost three people who killed by the israeli army murdered by the israeli army mustafa tamimi 2011 rushdi my brother-in-law and nariman my wife was filming and they killed him in front of her and she told him i am with beit salim i am with uh, uh, I am a journalist and she is filming and uh, they shoot a lot of live ammunition against her and she continue running until she arrive him. He killed 22 of uh, November 2012. Third one is Saba Ubaid, he's from Salfit, other village. He killed during the hunger strike demonstration supporting for the, hunger, the prisoner hunger, hunger strike. And they shot him by a sniper in his stomach and it's come in his heart and he died immediately. We have more than 350 injured persons, not all from Nabi Saleh, but most of them from Nabi Saleh, who had been uh, injured. Part of them has disability in part of their body. The worst one is Zihab Barghuti. He's full paralyzed by a rubber bullet in his head. A lot of people who had can't walk because they start using a sniper with 22 millimeters bullets, point 22. Mm. They shoot the people, they start using this, this strategy. They shoot the people in their left leg, in this part. And the, mostly of them, 70%, it charms the nerve of the foot. It's the sciatic nerve. To make the, the paralyzed the foot, it's make a continuous problem for them. It's a strategy, they target them in this part. Yani most of them it charmed the nerve. Somebody broke the leg cord, it comes mm. on the... Can you, can you tell me quickly about the, I think it was 40% or 60% of the houses have demolition orders? There's 80% of the village. We have 13 demolition orders for houses which located in Area C. One of it is my home. The old part, it's built 1964. I have a license from the Jordanian government. 
I have 200 square meter. They give me demolition order for 300 square meter. My home in area C. My nephew home, which my neighbor, there is uh, the, the line on the map comes on his roof and two rooms area B, two rooms area C. But they give him demolition order for all the house. This means 80% of the villages under demolition order. They demolished one of these houses last summer. And this means to keep us under stress. And we don't know when and, and how they will come and demolish the houses. It's a silent ethnic cleansing policy. Because they don't force the people to leave directly. By this demolishing order, I can't build the floor for my home, on my home to my son. My four son will be directly replaced to area B or area A or outside. And this means they don't push him out. They just give a demolishing order. It's indirect placement for the Palestinians. It's the main strategy for that. They want to push the people outside the land. Area C now, it's 62% of the West Bank. The West Bank, it's mean the, the promised state for the, the world talking about the two-state solution. It's under full control of the Israeli. We have just less than 250,000 Palestinians and more than 600,000 settlers. They bring the settler and they push the Palestinian out. They push the Palestinian out by a lot of policy. Water control, I don't allow them, them to build in houses or live there. They push them by force. They demolish order. They destroy the, the, the agriculture. They control the spring, the weather, everything. For that, they can't uh, let the shepherd to go with their sheep in any place. It's used for, by the farm and the owner of the, for the land to irrigate some vegetables for their sheep, for their... Uh, they took water for a drink to make tea for, and when they are working there. But they don't allow anybody to, to get water. There, and they come, they make a bowl, and they declare it's a, a holy water. And every woman who burn her child must come and wash herself from this water. Mythologia, they use it to bring the people, to make it a religious issue. And they became, and they start, became naked around the bowl. And they know our culture, you can't get your daughter or your wife to, to work in the place there is a naked people here. It's indirect also pushing the Palestinians out of their land. What can uh, international people like me do to help? I mean, as a Palestinian, it must be horribly frustrating that the world allows Israel to do what it wants, and yet you're demonised as terrorists. How does that make you feel as a, as a human being, as a father? All the time they want to, the victim to improve or to blame himself. Or they want to show, to stay there. Part of the problem that we are became the victim of the victim after the international community solved the result of the Holocaust on our land and from our account. But we pay the price for Europe. Europe and the European people who don't like the Jewish. For that they push them out. And now they don't want to feel sorry. For that they need what the Israeli doing for the Palestinian, Not to feel sorry and pity for what they are doing in the Holocaust. It's part of, uh, of stopping their conscientious to blame themselves. For that they need to see the victim as a criminal. For that they need the Israeli 
to be a criminal against the Palestinian for something in their in their mind or for their conscience. Yeah, and part of it is a part of the problem. And also, you know, the Israeli part of the problem that they they make a link between the terrorist and the Palestinian. They make you know they control the media and all over the world, CNN, Fox News, all of that. They show a Palestinian as a terrorist. But now by social media, we broke this monopoly of media. It's helping. It's a, a lot of helping. You know, it's bring the reality on the ground, on the table, in every home, to exit, to, to come and best to the, any information you want, if you search for the reality. Mm. But what they can do, we in Arabic, we have a say, Ahlu Makkah Adra Bishaabha, the resident of Makkah know its way well. You are as international. You can create your role and your responsibility and your duty. It's not a gift from you to, to be with the Palestinians. It's your duty and your responsibility. Nobody can be free if I lose my freedom. If we are human beings and we are really believe in the human rights. Israel is the guard for the interest of the capitalism, the military industry, mm. the colonization. For that, you suffer the same, we suffer the same enemy. You paid from your tax to Israel to be guard for the military industry in your country. For that, we have the same. When we, and we, we sit in Palestine, a stone of the head on the snake here, the same stone of the head stake, the snake there, because it's the same snake. We believe we are partner, and I believe that the third intifada must be international intifada. I, I believe that if, if, if peace comes by Jesus from Palestine, also peace for the world will come back from Palestine. You can start. Israel is the sample of all extreme terrorists and every bad thing in the world. For that, we need to focus on this problem. Sometimes uh, they want to push the, the conflict to, to show it as a religious conflict. They, they anti-Semitize for the people who just talking about something about occupation, about settler, about uh, killing the Palestinian. For me, it's not my responsibility and, uh, to recognize between Judaism and colonization and Israel and occupation and uh, Zionist and occupation. It's the, the duty for the Jewish, because as a Palestine is occupied, also the Judaism religion is occupied by these people and it, by the Zionism and it's used by in a bad way. They must struggle to took back their religion. Why do you reckon people should subscribe to 3CR? Because I think we have more awesome music shows than anywhere else. And they're niche and they're interesting and they're adventurous. Tracer, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. If you're on digital, mm. no tram interference. Mm. But if you're streaming, there's no tram interference. No, that's true. But if you like that's tram correct. interference, is always the AM. The AM, old school. <laughs> oh, who like, oh. You know, some people like the crack along vinyl. Well, you know, some, some people like noise music. Experimental mm-hmm. noise music. To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? 75 And solidarity? 150 $1.50. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 
8377 and subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. Three CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Um, That's all we have time for on our show today. Today um, at 10 past 7, we heard from Anthony Kelly from the um, Police Accountability Project. At about 7.30, we heard from Sonia Vermati, who's an author of Skin in the Game that talks about her life as a journalist and some of the lessons that she's learnt. Um, after that, we heard from Union News, which is part of the Stick Together show, and then we heard from Basim Al-Tamadi talking to Jan Bartlett, who's a Palestinian activist. Um, next week is International Women's Day. We're doing a special here from 3CR. Up next is Lost. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.